Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Amen. And amen. What a great time today in worship. I was uh, myself just wishing you all were back here in the sanctuary. So I know you're viewing in your homes on a device or maybe on a smart TV. And we can't wait to get you back here in the sanctuary. And we are waiting with bated breath for our governor and our local officials to make that possible. In the meantime, do join us for services Uh, for men's, women's, and couples, and as we can add things, we will. If you turn your Bibles tonight to Hosea chapter 10, we'll only be covering chapter 10, even though my first slide will say we're going to cover chapter chapter 11. That's not true. Uh, Chapter 10 only tonight. And the reason that I want to begin the way I'm going to begin is this. Very often, because we live in the age of grace, because as children of God by faith, coming to that wonderful, marvelous relationship we talked about this morning by believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are those that seemingly think that God has changed his moral character because he now relates to us through the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus, and because we are children of grace, that the law absolutely does not matter anymore. And in fact, we can live any way we want to live. We can do whatever we want to do. And even more to the point that we can continue in sin, even though the Apostle Paul, uh, writing on this very subject, said that we should not any longer continue in sin. You see, God's moral character hasn't changed. What was offensive to him in the garden is still offensive to him today. What he taught about morality in the Old Testament is still the truth tonight. And so as the children of Israel kind of model for us in a very general way, God's view of the things that we allow into our lives. So chapter 10 is a picture of what happens when you plant really bad things in your life. We've looked at the charges that were against the children of Israel. We've looked at the verdict. We've looked at the sentence. We've gone through these legal proceedings against the children of Israel. And as we now come to this chapter, we we really have to look at this and say, this is the direct result of how they lived their lives. And people don't like to hear this type of a message because we like to believe that because we're children of God by grace and through faith, that God is simply going to spare us from absolutely everything that ever comes our way, even if it's our responsibility or our fault. And while it is true in eternal sense that God will forgive our sin, he will remove it from the as far as the east is from the west. In that sense of, of the judicial way that God looks at it, he's no longer going to hold us accountable eternally for it. It does not mean that you will not reap what you sow. It does not mean that you won't bring drastic consequences into your life. It doesn't mean that the things that you plant won't bring forth exactly what you planted. And I think that sometimes we have to simply take a step back away from where we are in our world and go, could this be the direct result of us planting cactus in our lives? Are we instead of planting beautiful flowers or something that bears fruit, are we planting things in our lives that are going to bring us thorns and thistles? And so before we dig into chapter 10, let's pray. Ask the Lord to bless our time here in the book of Hosea in chapter 10. Father, we thank you that you are gracious and you are kind and you are tender and you are gentle and you are meek and you are merciful, that your mercies in fact are new every morning. But it is also true that you chasten those whom you love. That, Lord, the consequences of our planting bad things in our lives can last a lifetime. And so, Lord, could we learn from this chapter tonight that we ought to be very careful about what we plant. 
what, what we invest our time and our talent and our treasure in burying in soil so that it would grow. Lord, help us to be careful. Help us to look for good seed, good soil, and help us to avoid those patches of rocks, Lord, that won't bear anything good, or, or the seed that would be planted that would bring up thorns and thistles in our lives. God, help us to lay hold of this truth. Help us to receive these words with gladness. Because you love us, you instruct us and teach us these things. And so God, bless our time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember last time in chapter 9, we actually looked at this principle to, to some degree. And it's found there in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. But you, you can't escape this because it is a spiritual law. It isn't something that works part of the time and doesn't work the rest of the time. This is just like physics in the physical world. This is physics in the spiritual world. Just like Newton's laws applies to things physically, that if you put something in motion, it stays in motion until it's acted upon by an equal force. Unless that thing begins to decay and acts in a thermodynamically, thermodynamic way, then it, it would continue to grow. And in that sense, we have a spiritual law here that says if you plant A, then A is what's going to grow. If you plant B, then B is what's going to grow. And so we have to be careful what we plant because that's why Paul said that, writing to the church of Galatia, he said, don't be deceived. He begins our understanding of this law by saying, don't be deceived. Now, here's the real problem. People want to say, well, I was deceived by someone else, but very often the deception that we are deceived by is self-deception. It's not deception from someone else. We have deceived ourselves into believing that if we plant something bad that's going to bring up cactus in our life, thorns in our life, thistles in our life, that if we plant something like cactus, that somehow, if we just pray over it, or somehow if we just talk about it, or somehow if we sanctify it, or somehow if we tell other people it's no longer cactus, that it's going to turn into a, a nice nectarine tree. It's going to somehow grow grapes. It's going to turn into something else. And the truth is, it won't. If you plant cactus, cactus is what's going to grow. If you want fruit, you have to plant a fruit tree. The children of Israel learned this lesson. You see, that's why Paul would go on to say God's not mocked. Whatever you sow, that you will also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, in the Spirit, you're going to reap to everlasting life. It is absolutely immutable. It can't be changed. Now, that doesn't mean you'll always bear the consequences of every single thing that you plant, but it does mean what you plant is what's going to grow. And so if you don't want it to grow, don't plant it. And if you want something else to grow, then plant something else. You have to plant what you want to grow. And so we find here in this initial entry into this particular chapter, into chapter 10, some things that the children of Israel had planted. Now, I think they believed that they weren't going to see these things grow. That somehow, if they planted these rotten things that something else would come up in their garden of life. And we find that the law was true. They had sown to the wind, and they were about to reap the whirlwind. And so it begins verse 1, Hosea chapter 10. Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself. And according to the multitude of his fruit... He has increased his altars. In other words, it seems to be saying that Israel had planted a vine that was fruitless, lots of leaves, and the bigger the bush got, the worse things got. In other words, materialism, having prosperity, shade, all these things that would have been good things, they began to trust in them. And the moment they began to trust in them, then those things also led to them 
being increased in following after false gods according to the bounty of his land. Notice it. They have embellished his sacred pillars. They, they began to take what God had given them, and instead of using it for God's plans and purposes, they planted something terrible in God's garden. It's the reason that Jesus, in the parable of the vine, the husbandman, says, look, you're the branches. You, you can't grow anything that isn't a part of him unless you cut yourself off from the vine. Their heart was divided. Now they're guilty, it says in verse 2. And he's going to break down their altars. And he's going to ruin their sacred pillars. For now they say, we have no king because we did not fear the Lord. And as for a king, what would he do for us? They've spoken words, they've sworn falsely, making a covenant, and thus judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows of a field. So God kind of reviews the history of his relationship with the Jewish people. And what he was looking for was fruit, and what he got was thistles, what he got was thorns, what he got was cactus. The early tree as Israel came into the land was planted in a fertile land, a fertile field, protected by God, guided by God, and it produced great fruit. But that didn't last very long. And, and the more wealthy they became, the more good things God allowed into their lives, the less they depended on the Lord. And finally, this, this kind of joyful experience of their initial coming into the land, into the land of Canaan, enters King Balak. And King Balak gives Israel a taste for the worship of Baal, this bull god that came from the Sumerians. And the nation then begins to indulge in idolatry and immorality with everyone that's around them. And you can read the story of that in Numbers chapter 25. But as you read that story, you have to kind of put it into its right context because it wasn't that they needed to do that. They wanted to do that. They were self-deceived. It's like, well, we know we have the law. We know God's spoken to us through Moses. We have these five books that we would call the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. They had the Levitical law. They had the feast days. They knew exactly what God wanted from them. And so they, here they have this, and God's speaking to them and blessing them, and their fields are growing, and they're in abundance, and they're in the land, and everything's good. But, yeah, well, you know, I think we kind of want this stuff over here because this looks pretty good. What was that stuff? That stuff was material prosperity. That stuff was overt sexuality and the overindulgence in it, especially outside of marriage. And now they began to plant that into their society. People didn't stay married. They went and visited the various temples of Baal and Molech and Ashtaroth. And, and as, they're, as they're engaging in these overtly sexual things, actually in church, imagine that. God's saying, look, I'm not having any of this. The nation Israel lost its consciousness of God. And this is where I think it crosses paths with us in America today. America has lost its consciousness of God. Oh, we're all about all kinds of other things. We're worried about many things. We have become a Martha culture. We're no longer a Mary culture. We're not sitting at the feet of Jesus. We're a Martha culture. We're worried about all kinds of stuff, but we're not worried about what God thinks. We've taken God out of the equation. We said, well, we're going to follow after the world, and we're going to try and do things our own way. And if you take God out of the equation, all you have to do is look at national Israel to figure out where that bus goes. And it's not good. They went after every single false god that surrounded them. You read the tragic history of the Jewish people. And it's like God blesses them, and then they turn to idols. And God blesses them, and they turn to idols. And they want a king, and God takes the king, and they turn back to idols. It's like 
I look at our country today and I'm like, man, we're just after all these false idols, things that can never satisfy. They can't do anything. They're deaf, dumb, and blind. We've lost our collective consciousness of who God is in our culture. And if we don't return to this, I fear that we are planting a giant field of choya cactus. Now, for those of you that aren't from Southern California, you don't know what a jumping choya looks like. This, if the devil actually invented a single type of cactus, it's choya. We call it jumping cactus. The thorns are extremely long. It's super flimsy. You get anywhere near it. If you touch it, it has barbs on it. It sticks in your leg. And then because it sticks in your leg, the moment you pull back, it like flings a bunch more of the cactus on you because it begins to bend and move. And I think it's a perfect example of what's going on here with the children of Israel. They got stuck with a couple of thorns, but rather than going, hey, maybe we should stay out of the field of cactus, they said, well, you know, I think we can get through here. And you keep moving, and before you know it, you're just covered in these little chunks of cactus. If you plant cactus, you're going to reap some more cactus. You have to get rid of it. You have to pull it up by the roots. You, you, you can't just plant whatever you want. We've been bought and paid for with the price. That price was Christ, God's own son, and we're supposed to live like we belong to him. Not like we belong to the world. And in Israel's case, notice that they became litigious. And I don't think this is... This is uh, a mystery. Notice what it says. We don't have any king. We swear falsely, making covenants, and thus judgment springs up like poison out of the field. In other words, they were making up the rules as they went along. They changed the laws. They took each other to court endlessly. They multiplied lawsuits, if you will. And I think that's one of the evidences of a society that's falling apart. When you become overtly litigious, when you have to sue about everything, and I'm just going to be honest with you, when I watch some of these commercials on TV and it, and it begins with, well, I thought my case was only worth 45000 but so-and-so got me a million bucks. A million bucks for what? Because you got a car accident? When you become litigious, when you look at that as a way of taking advantage of someone else, not knowing it's something that you should do because it's the only path that you have left available, but you see dollar signs, it's like, wow, the guy bumped into my bumper. I can probably get a million bucks out of this. We're in trouble. We're in trouble. I've talked to countless people that have come in. They're on their fourth or fifth lawsuit that they're living on. Becoming litigious means that you're not trusting God. It doesn't mean that lawsuits are always wrong, by the way. But they shouldn't be the first thing that you think of doing. It's like, well, he took my chicken, so I'm going to sue him. the integrity of society, they began to make up their own rules, their own judges. They installed those people and then said, hey, we'll go to them because they'll give us something good. We get an agricultural image throughout this. But these shrines that were put up, you notice when we get to verse 9, and we'll get there in a minute, and back in chapter 9 and verse 9, we also have this same phrase, the days of Gibeah. And for sake of time, I'll just, I don't know if I could even say encourage you to read Judges chapters 19 to 21. But if you do, pray before you read it, because it is one of the most vile passages in the entire Old Testament. Because it paints a picture of people whose minds are so sexualized that it begins with an attempt by a bunch of men to homosexually rape a, a priest, a Levite's 
male servant, and he offers his daughter and his concubine, and ultimately the men of the city so abuse the concubine that she ends up laying dead at the door of the, of the Levite, and he takes her out and he cuts her into 12 pieces and, and sends her parts off to the children of Israel as a remembrance of the hideousness of that sin. Why am I telling you that story? Because we're going to see that's the reference point here. That's what it was in 9. They had become so sexualized, so perverted, so perverse, so bent towards homosexuality, and yes, I'm going to say it, bent toward, read it for yourself. Bring him out so we may know him carnally. It's what means what it says. They were so sexualized that what follows in the rest of chapters 19 to 21 is the story of a society that is so perverse that God just basically says, go wipe everybody out. They can't be saved. Their minds are so twisted that there's really no hope. Unless you kill them off. They had planted some serious cactus in that sense. The evidences of idolatry were everywhere, and it's, it's referring to these poles, these staves that were in every Phoenician temple. There were two Asherah poles. They sat outside the temple, and they were normally had offerings given to them, but they were basically um, phallic symbols. They, they were sexual, overtly. They were designed for people to see them and go, oh, that's what I want. What do we see in our culture? What do we see in our world? You think maybe some of the problems that we have might be related to what we have turned our eyes to? What we allow? We wonder why women are objectified when everything in our culture is about objectifying women? And I know that maybe to some of you that's an overstatement, but I ask you to simply look at what happened to national Israel. When they went down that road, it didn't take very long before God said, this is so bad, I'm going to have to obliterate them. They're out making the, the raisin cakes of Asheroth. It's blasphemous. What kind of things had they planted? Putrid, perverted religion. Religion that says, no, you can do anything you want, to whomever you want, with whoever you want. I get a lot of emails. We see you're not very accepting of the gay lifestyle. No, let me be really clear. I'm not accepting at all of the gay lifestyle. I'm not kind of sort of accepting. I am not accepting because God's not accepting. It's not okay with God. That's my official position. It was, well, are you inclusive? Inclusive of what? Inclusive of everybody who sins that wants to come to Christ? Absolutely. But if you think we're going to turn God's house into a house of ill repute, you got another thing coming here. It's not happening. That's what doomed the children of Israel. We will not ever, so long as I'm the pastor of this church, we will never perform a marriage ceremony for two men or two women. It's not happening. Why? Not because I hate anybody. Not because we hate anybody. We love them enough to tell them the truth, and God calls it an abomination. You are, oh, man, I can't believe you'd say that. It's the world that's sending the other message. God's word's clear. Read these chapters. When you go down that road, you're on a very slippery slope. Well, how come, you know, you, you know can't, people can't serve in your church if they're living together? Well, because it's sin. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and said, if you don't deal with them, 
You're in sin. Why am I saying that? Because it's time that the church be what God called us to be. Be ye holy as I am holy. We have to represent the Lord. I don't represent myself. I don't represent a model of ministry. I don't represent Calvary Chapel. Ultimately, I represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I better be concerned with what he thinks, what he wants. People are going to call that intolerant. That's what they said to the prophets. It's what they said to Jesus. What they said to the apostles. It's what they said about Paul. Not that I deserve to be mentioned in the same breath with any of those people, but the truth the truth. And so we have this record so that we can understand what planting cactus looks like. The truth is God hates competition. He won't put up with it. And so these images were competition. They were an alternate God to the God most high. And so the Lord says, mm, no, that's not working for me. What, what else did they plant? Check out verse 3 and 4 again, and then we'll take 5 and 6. And now they say we have no king, because we did not fear the Lord. And as for the king, what could he do for us anyway? Basically is the inference there. They've spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like hemlock, poison out of the furrows of the field. Verse 5, the inhabitants of Samaria fear. So the area between Galilee and Jerusalem. Because of the calf of Beth Evan. For its people mourn for it. The priests shriek for it. Because its glory is departed from it. And the idol shall also be carried to Assyria as a present for the king, Jerob. And Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of its own counsel. They're saying, look, we've lost our king. We, we've lost our idols. All the stuff we put our hope and our trust in, Assyria comes in and carries, carries everything away. We're now a kingless kingdom. Why? Because if you read the history of the children of Israel, it is a story of king after king after despotic king after despotic king that's either assassinated or produces an even more rotten child that then governs the kingdom, and then the children of Israel fall deeper into sin. And so God says, you know what? You're not going to have a king at all. So what did the children of Israel do? Well, we don't want David. God called David. We'll take Saul. That also didn't work out. You see, when you plant your own stuff in God's garden, it grows weeds. And God says, you know what? I'm going to weed my garden. I'm going to pull all the stuff up that you planted, and I'm going to throw it away because this is cacti, and I want grapes. Israel also planted palaces that became deserted ruins. Notice verse 7, as for Samaria, her king is cut off like a twig on the water. And also were high places of, of Avon. The sin of Israel shall be destroyed. The thorn, the thistle shall grow in its altars. They'll say to the mountains, cover us, to the hills, fall on us. This is picturing the utter desolation that happened first with the Assyrians, then with the Babylonians, and ultimately, and this is the crazy thing, you know, people always talk about Israel today. If you travel to Israel today, if you go with us on one of our tours, um, which will be April of next year, you travel with us. When you see Israel today, you go, man, this place is beautiful. But in 1948, it was not beautiful. It was hideous. It was inhabited by Bedouins. There was nothing there. Near the coast, it was swamped. Inland, it was desert. Everything that you see today, even the forests were replanted. There was nothing there. Why? Because God said so. 
until I begin to regather my children into the land, this land is going to stay desolate. You want your own king, you want your own way, you want to do your own thing, you want to plant cactus, I'm going to let you have a cactus garden. Instead of being busy with people and thronged with people, the, the shrines would be overgrown. The Syrians would do such an incredible job of destroying the land that we now call Israel, the promised land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what the Romans called Palestine, that the moon would cast cold shadows. There's nothing there for it to even... Shine a shadow on. The whole land would be like that. God's serious about us being serious about him. I'm serious about the children of Israel. He said, look, I, I brought you into this land. I delivered you from bondage. I preserved you in the wilderness. I got you to the border at Kadesh Barnea. I brought you into the land. Yeah, Moses died and he's buried on Mount Nebo, but I was faithful. I brought you into the land and I planted you in this beautiful land and you forgot me in one generation. Be careful what you plant. Don't deceive yourself. God's a jealous God. He's not willing to share you with anybody. And if you plant rotten things and they continue to grow in your life, God may end up plucking you and the plants out and say, look, okay, you want it this way, you're going to get it. The fourth thing that Israel planted was false repentance. Look at verse 9. O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. There's the reference. Back to the book of Judges, back to chapters 19 to 21, the horrors of this, it's nearly unbelievable. If you made it into a movie, it would certainly be X-rated. This incredible period of time in the days of Gibeah, and there they stood in the battle of Gibeah against the children of iniquity and did not overtake them. They didn't finish the job. They left a little bit of that iniquity intact. They we're given this horrible thing to do, admittedly. It's like, who would want to go out and slaughter everyone? Men, women, children. But so pervasive was the sin. God cares so deeply about what we plant into our culture, into our lives, specifically for us personally and in the lives of others as we are a witness for him. He says, look, if you keep doing this, I'm going to take you out. And why is that important? Because we're kids of grace. And while God's grace is amazing and he does forgive sin and he wants to cleanse and make us white as wool, all of those things, when you persist and you persist and you persist, God is serious about these things. He will do what, he's ha what he has to do to preserve his own name. When it is my desire, I will chasten them, verse 10 says. People shall be gathered against them, and I will bind them for their two transgressions. For Ephraim is like a trained heifer that loves a threshed grain, but I will harness her neck and make Ephraim pull a plow, and Judah shall plow, and Jacob shall break his clods. In other words, he's saying, look, this is going to affect the whole nation. Again, remember at this time, Ephraim is the ten tribes in the north. Judah is Judah itself along with the Levites and the tribe of Benjamin in the south. So you basically have a northern kingdom, which is called Ephraim or Israel, and a southern kingdom called Judah. And so he look, and then he finally uses the whole term Jacob, which would be all the 12 tribes. He says, look, there's going to be nothing left for Jacob to do, the whole of the children of Israel, but break up the mess that everybody else has left. And so then he gives the, the right type of view of this. So for yourselves... Righteousness. In other words, don't plant cactus. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for now is the time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. 
Israel wasn't going to repent. They, they weren't going to turn from these things. They were going to keep going until they had reaped everything that they had sown. And so I think what this is important for us as the church is like we have the opportunity to say, Lord, this is not what you want. We have not reaped all that we could. So why don't we stop doing these things that God clearly says is not from him? I have so many conversations, especially with young people today. It's like, well, it's legal. I can't tell you how many young people, well, you know, it's legal to smoke dope. Yes, it is. It's legal to buy all kinds of alcohol. Keep that in your house, too. It's also legal to fornicate. It's legal to commit adultery. It's legal to get a divorce. It's legal to destroy your own family. It's legal for you to go out and do whatever you want to do to please yourself. It's legal for you to watch pornography. So stop telling me what's legal, and why don't we start using God's standard? What is God okay with? Because that's what we're going to be held into account for. God doesn't care whether we've made some law to make legal what he said isn't okay. He's going to hold us to his standard. This is what I said about it. This is what you're supposed to do. And instead, we're wandering around going, well, you know. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's okay with God. It's legal to do a lot of things that God still hates. Because it destroys people. And so what does Hosea say? So, righteousness. Reap mercy. Break up the fallow ground. Why? It's time to seek the Lord. Then he comes and rains righteousness on you. You have to plant righteousness. If you want to reap mercy, you have to break up the hardened ground of your heart, as Jeremiah would call it. It's time to actually seek the Lord, to go after him as though you're trying to find treasure. This doesn't mean, well, you know, I kind of want to go to church every once in a while. No, this is, this is us saying, Lord, I want you and I want you alone. I want you to govern my life. I actually want you to be Lord, Master. I don't just want you as Savior, I want you also as Lord. And by the way, I personally believe that those two things are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. If Jesus Christ is your Savior, he's also your Lord. And if he's not the Lord, then you might want to look and see if he's your Savior. A fifth thing, Israel planted these seeds of of a dreadful reward. Something was going to come to them. And I think they were so deceived, it was, it was kind of like they just, you know, we're God's chosen people. Just like people today go, well, I'm his child by grace. There's great similarity between the, the ancient Jewish people, the Israelites, and, and the church today. While we are not the same, God has a plan for national Israel still to this day. There are some tremendous similarities, and one of them is, if you're a child by grace, you can think that you have special freedom with God. No, what you actually have is special accountability before the Lord because you know the truth. You've plowed wickedness and you've reaped iniquity. He he gives us, in essence, the opposite of verse 12 and verse 13. You've eaten the fruit of lies. Notice what it says. Because you trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your mighty men. You you trusted in political correctness, the vote of the majority, community rule. You, You made gods after your own making. You made rulers after your own making. And therefore, verse 14 says, tumult shall arise among your people. When you establish your own righteousness, when you establish your own rules, when you make up your own gods, and when you appoint people to enforce those things which you yourself have crafted in your brain, this is what you get. This, by the way, is the reason socialism will not ever work. 
Because the moment you put somebody in charge, that person automatically has power over everyone else. And so you end up with an oligarchy. You just have a ruling class of people. The children of Israel are an example of this. God said, I will be your God. In effect, God wanted a theocracy. He wanted to rule the Jewish people himself. But instead, they wanted a king. And as soon as they got a king, then they got all the problems of human rule. And so in our world today, I wonder if the tumult that arises among our people is because of these very things. We've established rulers that will give us what we want. This is the fear that Alexis de Tocqueville had. This is the moment that people can figure out to give themselves gifts by putting certain people in power, then they will put people in power who will give them what they want. That is the end of the society. And all your fortresses shall be plundered. Everything you built up, all the stuff that you trusted in will come crashing down. As Salmon plundered Beth Arbel in the day of battle. This is a tremendous, horrific event in the children of Israel. When the Assyrian soldiers came to the cliffs of Arbel, there's a canyon that comes from the northern sea, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. The little town of Migdal or Magdala sits at the mouth of that canyon. There's a creek that comes down from Cana and Nazareth, and it flows past the cliffs, the cliffs of Arbel. And there's actually an ancient fortress and dwellings in those cliffs. People thought they were safe there until the Assyrian army came. The Assyrian army figured out if they just built fires at the base of the cliffs, that the smoke would drive the people out. There was a singular way up the cliff, and the people would climb up the cliffs, and guess who was waiting at the tops of the cliffs but the Assyrian army? And as the people came up, they would take the children and crack open their skulls and hand them to their mothers and then toss the mother and the child off the cliff. They thought they were safe in their fortress at Arbel, in Beth Arbel, the house of ambush. Interesting name. You see, they thought they were safe. In the day of battle, a mother dashed in pieces upon her children. And thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel. House of El, house of God. That's what Bethel means. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? Notice there's a reason for it. We're actually given the reason. Why will this happen? Read it for yourself. You've reaped iniquity. In other words, you planted it, you're reaping it. You've eaten the fruit of lies. You're a liar because you trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your mighty men. In other words, you wanted to live life your own way by your own rules. And because of that, thus it shall be done to you, O house of El, house of God. Because of your great wickedness, at the dawn, the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. And so again, back to the Jewish people, back to Israel. The reason that they suffered kinglessness, kinglessness, was because they trusted in the king. The reason they suffered iniquity is because they planted iniquity. The reason that they had despotic rulers is because that's what they wanted. That's who they voted for, in essence. And while they didn't have a democracy, they did have some input. So they said, well, we want Saul. We want somebody big and strong, somebody that can fight for us. We're going to go get the Philistines. All of their defenses would fail. Hosea reminds me, says, look, you're trusting in the wrong thing. You're supposed to be trusting in God. You're supposed to be living God's way. And ultimately, these terrible things that are said here were reenacted on a national level. This is what happened to the Jewish people. So much so that as you look through their history and you come to the dispersion where the Jewish people in AD 70, as Flavius Titus comes and sacks Jerusalem, 
drives the Jewish people out, enslaves them. They would stay out of the land for almost 2,000 years. And the land would become a desert. God doesn't play around. Some of you are going, ah, terrible. I'm never coming to Sunday night service again. I didn't write this. But I do know what it says. And I do know the history of the Jewish people. I know exactly where these stories are found. I've been to the land. I've been to these sites. I've stood on the tops of the cliffs of Arbel. I've looked over the edge going, that's not a good thing that happened. I've seen the pictures of Zion before the Jewish people came back in 1948. I saw what it looked like. It was desolate. God spoke the truth. He's still speaking the truth. You're going to get a harvest based on what you plant. Because in Hosea, in his time, the ten tribes were practicing all these abominable things, God would judge them. You want to plant that cactus? Try living on that. Try walking in that. Try resting in that. Resting in that. And at the end of this chapter, we find Hosea comparing Israel to a, to a young heifer, a, a cow, that at first really kind of almost seems to enjoy treading out grain for a really bad reason. Because while she's working, going in circles, going nowhere, she can eat everything she wants and get nice and fat and happy. But notice the other part of it. Then she's going to be yoked to another beast and be forced to plow the field. You see, the devil never tells you that part. He says, oh, it's going to be fine. You're just, yeah, you're going to go around in circles a little bit, but you're going to be fat and you're going to be happy. Doesn't tell you he's going to kill you. Doesn't tell you that that relationship with that other person is going to destroy your life. Doesn't tell you about what it's going to do to your kids. Doesn't tell you what that divorce is going to do. How it's going to destroy your entire family, maybe for generations. Doesn't tell you what that alcoholism is going to actually do to you. Doesn't tell you about the cirrhosis of the liver. Doesn't tell you about the drug use, what's going to happen as you, as you age and now your mind no longer works because you destroyed very necessary brain cells when you were younger. You see, the devil never tells you those things. doesn't tell you what that sexual sin is going to do. All those partners that you had when you were younger that now cannot come out of your mind. They're there forever. Never satisfied. Be careful. Because if you plant cactus, cactus grows. The children of Israel knew this. Their days of beautiful fruit salads and luscious grapes and fruit in the land were over. Assyria came, wiped them out. And to some degree, this is almost, uh, you, can, you can imagine John the Baptist holding up the book of Hosea and go, thus says the Lord, repent. But it is also true that the plow of conviction has to break up the hardness of our hearts before the seed of the word can go where it needs to go and do what it needs to do. And so I pray you're not discouraged in that sense because you've heard this, there's still time for you to change course. And if you already know these things and you're walking these things, then stand for the truth. Don't don't let people push you away from the truth of what God's word says. It's not going to be easy. I'm telling you, it won't be easy. People are going to hate you. They're going to call you all kinds of awful things. They'll threaten you. I had no idea that I would receive death threats as a pastor, but I have recently. It's like, okay. 
but I'm still going to tell the truth. Don't plant cactus unless you like thorns. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you're gracious and you are kind and you're unwilling that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, Lord, because we live in that time of grace, that age of grace, there is opportunity for us to stop and say, Lord, help me to plant some good things. I've been planting cactus. I wonder why my life was so filled with thorns and thistles and problems and pain. Now, Lord, I pray if there's someone listening tonight and they were planning on doing something today, tonight, tomorrow, that they know is wrong. They know it's not your plan. That they would stop and fall on their face, on their knees, and just say, Lord, help. I don't know how to plant the right things, and I'm asking for your help. And so, Lord... You're near to the brokenhearted, the downcast you won't cast out, the broken reed you will not further break. We know that you love us. And so God, help us to turn to you. God, we pray for our nation. It's broken. It's strayed from you. Jesus, you're not first. God, you're, you're a byword in our country. And Lord, we, we don't want to see where the end of this journey might go. And so we're asking for repentance and revival to sweep across our land, Lord, for the church to become alive with the truth, not with politics, with truth, the truth of your word. So, Lord, we we give our lives to you. And, Lord, if there's things that need to come out of our gardens, help us to pull them out, dig deep and get the roots out. Lord, help us to plant things that will bear good fruit. Fruit that abounds into repentance and is well-pleasing to the vine dresser. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.